It was a big shock, I think, for me to begin to acknowledge all of this more openly, to be able to discuss the fact that I was adopted and that I was of a different race, even with my wife without feeling like annoyed by that. I was able to answer the inevitable questions from people who met me without getting upset, at least inside. And the way I was able to do these things is because I began meeting other Korean adoptees. Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I am your host, April Fallon. I am the adoptive mother of four. I don't just talk about adoption, I live adoption. Are you loving season five? We are so happy to be bringing you new stories every week. We're very honored that people come on and share stories from the heart. We talk about the joy and challenges of adoption. If you are new to Adoption Now, we tell stories from all over the world from the perspective of the birth parent, adoptee, and adoptive parent. We talk about adoption and foster care and the real issues that are happening right now. If you're about to start your adoption journey or you need help in your adoption process, we want to connect you to the resources you need. We have agencies, therapists, and lawyers that can help you. Check out our website at adoptionnow.com. We have a new blog, yay, and it's set up so that you can be a guest blogger. We want you to submit an entry The words have to be between 800 and 1,000 words, and it's called Adoption Is. You fill in the blank. We want to know what adoption has done for your life and how it has affected you. We have entries from agencies, adoption photographers, other bloggers. Listen, if you've been changed by adoption and helped the community in any way, I would love to hear your perspective. You can email me at april at adoptionnow.com. Okay, so today our show is dedicated to adult adoptees trying to find their voice. Glenn Mori joins the show. Glenn, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me on. So you have a new project, and I'm excited to talk about it. You are the producer and co-director of Side by Side, out of a South Korean orphanage and into the world. You are adopted from Korea, correct? Adopted in 1960 at the age of six months old. Wow. And so this is probably really close to your heart. It looks like you've been doing film for a very long time, but why did you decide to do this project? Well, I actually retired in 2012 and uh, was looking for a new project to take on. And this was something that I've been wanting to do for a number of years now. I didn't really plan on it being quite this big of a project. Mm -hmm. I didn't plan on filming a hundred people. I didn't plan on filming all over the world. So when we started, we started with eight interviews where I live in Denver. And it was just such an amazing experience that uh, we couldn't stop. And so we we decided to go to another city and we filmed in more interviews and, and we just kept going like that. We made it known that we we were working on this project and and adoptees from all over the world began to contact me. I probably conducted, I don't know, 500 telephone interviews with people, pre-interviews mm-hmm. all over the world. People who would get me on the phone and we would talk for, for an hour or more. And I knew that there was a tremendous desire, a tremendous hunger to tell their story maybe in a more full and complete way, not just the, the facts of their story, but really 
full descriptions and narratives of the inner journey, the inner life that they had experienced, you know, through their childhood, through their adolescence, their maturing into adulthood, and all the way to today. I can't wait to talk more about that because I want to know what your final conclusions are, if you have any. And I want to know what the project, what was its purpose, and is it doing that? But we're going to talk about that after you tell me your adoption story. So you were six months old, and were you adopted here in Denver? You know, no adoptee story starts with their adoption. It's so true. So I guess the way I would describe my story is is that the beginning of it is kind of a black hole of information. So like many adoptees from Korea, I start with nothing. I just know what I do know from a, a file that I have that is similar to to tens of thousands of other files of other Korean adoptees. What I do know is that at the age of one or two weeks, I was abandoned in Seoul, Korea. I was processed through the city hall in Seoul, and I was claimed then out of that city hall by the Holt Orphanage located in Nokbundong in Seoul, that neighborhood in Seoul. And they took me there. I was assigned the guardianship of a man named David Kim who ran the orphanage for the Holtz. And a few months later, I was adopted by a family in Littleton, Colorado. They picked me up in Portland in July of that year. And uh, I was on an airplane chartered by Holt that was, that was filled with boxes of babies. <laughs> there were 81 babies, or babies and children, I should say, on that aircraft, along with eight or nine adults. And we landed at, at the Portland airport, and my parents were there to pick me up and took me back to Littleton. How do you feel about all these children coming over? Well... It's difficult to fathom, I think, the implications of that because I know a lot of adoptees feel like they were somehow specially chosen by you know, a family and, and that somehow all of this was working according to some plan. I don't necessarily see it that way. For myself, I see it like this giant bingo game, you know, <laughs> where I was really, really fortunate mm. to be the 1% of the kids who were taken out of that orphanage. I have met guys who were in my orphanage with me when I was there, and, and most of the kids in those orphanages aged out. The vast majority of them did. So it's amazing I got out. It's amazing that, that I ended up with the family that I did, which resulted in a really positive adoption experience. Some people didn't end up with such a great family and a great adoption experience, as I now know from talking to adoptees all over the world. So when I think of the enormity of it and almost the random nature of it, it kind of breaks my brain a mm -hmm. little. And I can only think about it that way for short periods of time. Mm -hmm. The complexity of it is overwhelming. And I, I don't know if you have found this, but I have found as I interview more and more people, it gets more and more challenging to make a decision 
to understand adoption, to wonder, is this good? Is this bad? In your film, you go back over to Korea, as you said, and you talk to people who were raised all the way through and aged out. What was their life like? Well, it depends on what era Mm -hmm. we're talking about. If we're talking about the era in which I was institutionalized, it was tough no matter no matter how kind and compassionate and good-hearted the orphanage managers or directors were there was just very little food in the country and so no matter who i talked to and i talked to i interviewed 12 different people who aged out of orphanages in korea ranging in birth year from 1945 to 1995 so 50-year range of age. But for the first 10, even 20 years, they all talked about hunger. Mm. They all did. They all talked about how hungry they were and walking around and wandering around either town or back in the hills trying to find stuff to eat. They talk about foraging and they talk about stealing and they talk about fighting. And, and I think it was very, very difficult. I know that in the orphanage that I was in, for the decade that I that followed when I was there, there was a, somewhere around a 25% mortality rate in that orphanage. Wow. And I know from talking to all of these other adoptees, I know that it was very common for them to arrive at their receiving country very underweight, mm-hmm. uh, very undersized. I have a friend who arrived at 18 months, and she weighed 16 pounds when she arrived. That's not an uncommon story. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's very typical for any adoption occurring really in the 60s and 70s and even the early 80s. It's interesting that you say that you didn't feel chosen, but you felt lucky. Tell me the difference between those two. Well, I feel lucky to be Glenn Morey. Mm-hmm. Okay, I feel lucky that I'm sitting in this studio talking about a wonderful project that has added such dimension to my life and talk from the vantage point of a long career that, that I found very satisfying and all of those things, right? So I feel lucky to be me. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily feel lucky just to be adopted because there were a lot of people who got adopted who wish that that didn't happen right? and that they had not been adopted by the people that they were adopted by. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the reality of, of the interview, certainly, that we conducted. So I don't think that, that being adopted is inherently lucky. I think I'm lucky to have had my life. Let's talk about that life. So you came over at six months, and your parents go to Portland. They bring you back here. Were you their first child? No, I joined three biological daughters. I was the first son. Then I was also the first of four adopted children in our family. One more from Korea, my brother, not biologically to me, but my my adopted brother, and two sisters who were adopted domestically. How did you all get along? Well, it was complicated in our house. My father got quite sick when all of us who were adopted, so sort of the younger set of children, were still pretty young. I was in my teens, but my younger brother and sisters were very young. And he died very shortly thereafter from cancer. He was really the catalyst for all of the adoptions. 
So that left my mother, who was not the catalyst for those adoptions, and and I think she struggled with that. She passed away a couple of years ago, but I can tell you that the relationships in my family between my mother and all of the children that she adopted, they were all strained, if non-existent, if not non-existent. Mm. So in a sense, we had a very good experience in that we were secure and safe and and we got good educations and we were well provided for. But I think ultimately we were each left to, to come to grips with who we were in terms of family connection, who we were in terms of ethnically. Uh, one of my adopted sisters is African-American. And who we were just in terms of our place in the world. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about when you were adopted, this closed era is what we like to say. It's this closed era of adoption where you didn't really talk about adoption, right? You were adopted, but your mom didn't sit down and say, hey, Glenn, how did you feel about that? Or, you know, do you feel different? Or what can I, it just, we didn't talk about then. And now we're in this era of open adoption where we are starting their stories out young. We're sitting down, we're talking about it. If they are upset that they are adopted, they can say that, right? We want to cultivate this, this lifestyle that's more open. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're bringing in the birth parents. It just means you're open about it. So in the closed era, as I think you would agree, right? When you were growing up, nobody sat down and said, hey, Glenn, how do you feel about being adopted? Do you feel lonely? I agree with the end result, but I, I'm not sure I would characterize the genesis of it that quite that way. Mm-hmm. Because to me, and what was clearly indicated in all of the interviews, or I should say nearly all of the interviews we did, their parents were essentially told to assimilate us into the family seamlessly. Mm-hmm. So to treat them no differently than from your biological children. And to, and to not overemphasize the fact that they might be of a different race and that sort of thing. And I think that parents really took that to heart, you know, that this notion that, that if I love these adopted children or this adopted child in the same way that I love my biological children, everything's going to be fine. And so I wouldn't necessarily characterize that as, as, as somebody deciding that they're simply not going to talk about it. But I think you're right in the sense that, that ultimately the adopted children frequently interpreted that and the mm-hmm. fact that it was never discussed to be a taboo subject, mm-hmm. both the subject of their origins, meaning where they came from. I mean, they came from somewhere right. um, and they knew that. Right. So they thought that that was an out-of-bounds topic and, uh, and they also thought race was an out-of-bounds topic. Mm-hmm. Tell us the story about you at school and what your mom told you to tell the other kids. Oh, well, my mom was sort of an adamant person in in the sense that she had a way of pretty much fixing, or at least in her mind, fixing anything that you might bring up really quickly and bringing that discussion to to a close really quickly. And so I remember the first time that I came home from school with having experienced racism. I'm sure it was just somebody calling me something, you know, that I didn't like. And, but her response was immediately, next time that happens, you just tell them that you're Scottish 
because the mores are Scottish, and that makes you Scottish. Which, yeah, I get that now, thinking back on it, because that's an extension of mm-hmm. that what they were told to do, right? That I should be no different from anyone else in the family. Mm-hmm. But even at you know six or seven years old, I knew that was ridiculous. <laughs> and so, and I also knew that it was not helpful at all, and that I would never do that actually. And then lastly, I knew that I would never discuss it with her ever Mm. again because I knew that it was just, there was no connection there. Mm -hmm. Even at six or seven years old, I knew that my mom had no idea what I was talking about and really wasn't that concerned about it. Mm -hmm. And and that that is not a unique story. And in fact, in the vast majority of interviews that we conducted, not only did we hear stories of racism, but we heard stories of very truncated discussions with that adoptee and their parents. Discussions that were essentially ended very quickly by a parent saying something like, well, you can't let that bother you. Or they probably didn't mean it. Or some people are just mean, you just got to ignore it. Or kids just say mean things sometimes. Whatever version of that they got, Essentially, what it was designed to do was to bring to a close a conversation that that parent was uncomfortable with, mm-hmm. didn't want to have in any way, shape, or form, and and so offered this sort of fix that in their mind should work just fine, and next thing you know, you have a child who, who very much knows that that's not a discussion that they're going to have with their parents. Mm-hmm. That story broke my heart because I was thinking about my daughter who is five and she's Colombian. And they did this thing at school where you had to bring in food for the party from your ethnicity. And my husband and I, we are always like, hey, you're part of our family, right? So we're Irish and my husband's German. And so we're going to bring Irish or German. And I'm like talking to her and she's looking at me and she's like, well, I'm not Irish or German and she's five. And I'm like, oh, but you are part of our family. Like it was so hard for me because I was conflicted because if I let her bring her culture's food, then did she feel she's not a part of us? And then if I forced her into like, you're going to bring sausage because, you know, whatever, we are German. Is she going to now feel like I'm denying her background? And so ultimately we talked to her and said, what do you want to bring? And she says, well, I'm Colombian. I need to bring quesadillas. And we're like, that's so great. And she stood up and she told the class that she is Colombian. <laughs> Colombians are very smart. And she said, you know, these funny things. And the whole time I'm thinking, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? I mean, I, and she, I just let her be her. But then I wanted to say to her too, you know, you're part of us too. What is the right thing to do? First of all, You can't have a conversation about anything with anybody, let alone between a parent and a child, if you're afraid of that conversation, Mm -hmm. okay? So if you are afraid of this subject of race, you're afraid to identify your child as one race, if we're talking about a transracial adoption, as Mm -hmm. one race versus the race that you are as the parent. If that can't even be identified and acknowledged, without using euphemisms or magical thinking of colorblindness or, mm-hmm. or I don't see you that way, 
all of that is a non-starter. It all starts with, I think, an honest acknowledgement of, of what is apparent to the child, what is apparent to the world, mm-hmm. who observes you as a family. So there's just no getting around that. And, and I think that it, it really does start with the ability to approach a, that conversation without fear or discomfort. Mm-hmm. It is really hard. And I will say that there are moments that I feel afraid and I love conversation, all right? I, I love conversation and even difficult, but there are moments where I can really identify with the parents who just shut down because you're like, where is this going to go? And what it's made me do is deal with my own. Why do I feel that way? What, why do I feel upset? And I talk very openly about my own life with my kids. And, you know, I've told them I was raised without a dad and they'll say like, we're out to dinner and they'll be like, she didn't even have a dad. And I'm like, thank you so much for bringing that up. But, you know, they're testing to see if I am afraid to talk about hard things. And where is it okay to talk about hard things? Is it okay in public? I have learned to get past that and to do it anyways. I'm afraid to talk to you about this, but I'm doing it anyways. And I want to approach this. And it might just be five minutes because I can tell sometimes when I talk about it with my son, it's, it's like five minute window. He will open up. And then he's done. It's too much for him in that time. And we can circle back around, you know, at another time. And I think that is where we encourage parents now to say, if you're afraid, do it anyways. You have to, because the end result is you're shutting down this little person that you adopted and they aren't your blood child. And you have to address those issues. And I, I hear that from what you're saying and, and listening to you talk is helping me so much and listening to stories of adoptees helps the adoptive parent helps other adoptees helps birth parents i mean it just is a part of life sit down and listen to somebody then you can really make a decision that's best for your family we have to take a break when we come back i want you to tell another story that and and i listened to your personal story on this film project and i was just so moved by it there are some things that you talk about your parents doing and i'm like yeah I could see myself doing that or, wow, I need to be careful and not say those things. So you have taught me so much. When we come back, we're going to talk more about your project. You're listening to Adoption Now. We'll be right back. Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I am Noah, April's husband, and as you know, the adoptive dad of four. Today I have AJ with me, our eight-year-old son. Hi, Dad. AJ, do you have anything to say to our listeners? Yes. Thank you for listening to Adoption Now. Your mom loves to talk about it, doesn't she? She sure does. Keep listening and subscribe to our weekly episodes. If you have a story you would like to tell, please check us out at AdoptionNow.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today, we're talking to Glenn Morey, producer and co-director of Side by Side, Out of a South Korean Orphanage and Into the World. Glenn, you have interviewed so many different people, and we've been talking about your story today and how you processed your story. Where were you in life when you decided, first of all, that you're going to do this project? And did you have any self-reflection at that time? Like, What's my story and what do I want to learn? Well, the way I grew up, you know, with uh, very little acknowledgement, if actually pretty close to zero acknowledgement of my origin, my adoption, my, my race or ethnicity, 
from a very, very young age, I, I began building an identity for myself that had everything to do with everything except those things. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just wanted to be this person that wasn't any of those things, that wasn't adopted, that wasn't, you know, didn't come into the family in some weird way, that wasn't this race of person that, that was completely novel in my community and obviously in my family. So, so as a result, that's the way I went through adulthood and, and for decades. And I reached middle age, and, and then I had like the weirdest middle-aged crisis ever. So in my middle-aged crisis, I discovered that I was Asian. And I kid, of course, but not completely. I have a good friend who, who has a term for, for what we all had when we were growing up that I love. And, and so I've stolen this term from her, but she calls it white brain. And, and it, what, what that means is that, is that we know we don't have a white face, but really we go through life behaving and interacting with other people and, and going through all kinds of experiences as if we were white. So for me to be at a party, for example, and this was the way it was back then it, it, during, before my midlife crisis, I would be at a party and all of a sudden I would catch sight of the, the room in a mirror, a big mirror on the wall. And I would see that oh, there's this Asian guy, you know, standing in the middle of this room amongst all these white people. And it would look kind of strange because I don't see that. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously what I see is a room full of white people. And then with my white brain, I don't really realize that I'm the different part of the room. Mm-hmm. So it was a big shock, I think, for me to begin to acknowledge all of this more openly, to be able to discuss the fact that I was adopted and that I was of a different race even with my wife, without feeling like annoyed by that, I was able to answer the inevitable questions from people who met me without getting upset, mm-hmm. uh, at least inside. And the way I was able to do these things is because I began meeting other Korean adoptees. Mm-hmm. and uh, Talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah comparing up. this experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I began to realize that, that really... Amongst Korean adoptees, I was a cliche. You know, I was exactly, mm-hmm. I had lived life exactly mm-hmm. the same as all of these people that I was meeting, even though, even though I'd never met any of these people and, and they looked very different from the people that, that I normally socialized with and so forth. And so, yeah, that was, that was a very revealing time in my life. And it, it went through a period of three or four years where I, I, be, I went to a lot of events where there were a lot of Korean adoptees. And I also went to Korea on several occasions to visit Korea. Not, I was not successful in terms of pursuing more information about my origin or anything like that because there isn't any. But just being there, you know, walking around and being a Korean amongst Koreans, mm-hmm. you know, that was a very you know, transformative time in my life. So, so as I went through this period of time, I realized how valuable it was it had, and it certainly had been for me to hear stories from other adoptees. And it began to, to occur to me that I could use my background in my profession and my, my abilities in filmmaking to, to capture these stories mm-hmm. and to present them to the world so that so that the question of 
what happened to all those kids that got adopted, mm-hmm. you know, by all these people all over the world? What happened to all those kids? Mm-hmm. What were their lives like? And where are they now? So we set out to answer that question. Tell the story about getting your driver's license. It's a story that kind of boggles my mind to this day. But so when I was growing up, again, my mother in that adamant way of making sure that I felt like I was part of the family really in a lot of ways insisted that I wasn't really Korean. For example, she told me from a very, very early age that I had dark brown hair. My hair is black. It has always been black. It'll always be black until it's gone, which is not that far from now. But I bought this, that I was part of the family. And so I remember when I went to get my driver's license and I went up to, walked up to the counter at the DMV and the guy's asking me all these questions, height, weight, hair color, dark brown. And he just looks at me like, are you some sort of freaking idiot? I mean, what, what are you telling me? You're not, you don't have dark brown hair. And in that moment, I very much realized what had happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like an instantaneous epiphany. And was embarrassed and felt very bad about myself at that moment mm-hmm. that I hadn't even figured that out about myself, that I had black hair and that I was Korean and, and that that's the way everybody who looked at me saw me. Mm-hmm. Just a complete loss of identity and believing the story that your parents had told you, whatever that is. And I think that that is so difficult because we do want to tell a story to our children, but it's also so important to release them to find their own story. And you didn't start this project until how old were you? I started the project six years ago. So when I was 53. So at 53 is when you were really starting to say, wait a second, I'm Asian? No, I started that during my midlife crisis, which occurred in my 40s. Okay. I had to quit working to be able to do this project because it was, it took, it was a full-time job Yeah. for five years. And traveling around and interviewing adoptees from specifically Korea, correct? Yeah, that's where we started. Um, we, we knew we wanted to include aged out Koreans in the project because that is the question that adoptees always ask themselves. What would have happened mm-hmm. if I'd stayed in Korea? I mean, your parents tell you theories about that. I guess you could call them theories. They often state them, according to the interviews we did with people, parents often state these alternate destinies as as fact that you would have been a janitor or a prostitute mm-hmm. or or dead, none of which plays into a narrative that I think is very healthy. So we asked ourselves this question. So we went back, and that was the first thing we tried to do. It was a very difficult thing. People don't want to be identified as having aged out of an orphanage in Korea. There's enormous social bias mm-hmm. against those people because of the way public records are kept and because of the way that they are public. People can find out that about you without your knowledge even. So they're very afraid of their friends and the people they work with finding out about this bit of history that they have. So we got a lot of declines when we went around asking people. First of all, it was hard to find them. Second of all, it was it was hard to get them to say yes. And third of all, we had to agree that those films would never be screened in Korea. Mm. 
Wow. But they did answer you honestly, and they did talk about it. And what did you learn through that? Well, they're, I mean, they're breathtaking stories simply by virtue of the fact that you haven't heard any of this. Mm -hmm. So, so as an adoptee, I had no idea what they were going to say, but I was struck clearly by how difficult their lives were, you know, people who were my age in the orphanage. But I was also struck by the younger people in terms of how completely aware they were of how challenging life was going to be. And that people looked at them through, through a certain kind of lens, a biased lens, mm-hmm. and how difficult it was going to be to, to find real friends and to find partners and spouses and so forth that they knew. They knew that it was going to be a tough, tough road. They knew it was going to be a tough road to get the kind of job and career that they wanted. It's immensely challenging. I would say that it's not much different, though, from those who age out of foster in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Statistically, those who age out of foster in the U.S. have a very difficult time. Only like 10% of those who age out even try to go to higher education, and of those, only 1% graduate. Mm-hmm. So that's well below the averages for the rest of the population. So this is not a slam on Korea as much as it is a slam, I think, on global society in general, mm-hmm. that kids who grow up without the protection and security of families are enormously disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. Did the children or the adults that aged out, did they say they wish they would have been adopted? Yes, mostly. Uh, a couple didn't. A couple said they had met enough adoptees to know that that had its challenges too. Mm-hmm. They also, there were, there were some who, who, who said no because they did not believe that they would have wanted to grow up and live outside of Korea. Mm-hmm. However, most of them said yes simply because they believed that they would have had a far more advantaged life, mm-hmm. far more choices far more freedom in terms of the kinds of choices that they would have been able to make. Mm -hmm. It's important for everyone to see that. It's important to hear everybody's perspective. It's important to know it's all hard, right? It's all of us trying to find our path and trying to make sense of it. And I think about my own life and I didn't grow up with my father, didn't know about him. He found me later. We're American Indian. So at you know, 18, 19, I'm going back into this culture that I did not know of at all. Mm. And seeing my cousins that were prostitutes, seeing my family that were on drugs and alcoholism and everything. And I had envisioned that it was like this dreamy place. And it was just going to be so amazing to find this family that was just crying every day for me. And then I get there and it was a shock and it was painful. And I was thankful for my family But still, the pain did not go away that my dad did not reach out or raise me, right? So I had two dual things going on. I was thankful, and I still experienced loss and pain. And I think that finding that dichotomy and just letting it sit there, for me, is helpful. I always thought you had to be one or the other. You got to be grateful or you got to be sad, you know? And did you find that when you were interviewing all of these people, did you find some sort of 
common theme with everyone? Like, wow, I could say that everyone feels this way or a majority of, and I don't know what that topic is. You, you tell us what, what was it that was the outcome? Well, just to tail out of what you were just talking about, I think that one of the most important things to learn from from 100 interviews, or, or I should say 88 adoptee interviews, is that the vast majority of people we talk to are enormously conflicted mm. on this subject. Because you may, you may have a great life today. You, know, you may have everything that you would have wanted, and, and you may have had a great upbringing, Everything might have been just perfect, but you might still be very sad when you think about your origin or when you remember your origin, as some people can, their time in Korea. On the other hand, you know, there are people, we talk to a lot of people who, who have not had perfect stories and all the way to deeply, deeply troubling kinds of childhoods filled with abuse and and mm-hmm. and every horrific thing you can think of. So so as you can imagine this is all very complicated and there's a lot of conflictive feelings within each individual adoptee about how they exist in the world. Mm-hmm. So that's one. I think that probably the thing that people wanted to talk about the most, well, two things. One is they wanted to talk about, to use a sociological term, how they became racialized. So how they went from purely being white-brained mm-hmm. to, to being somebody who identified as what they really were, mm-hmm. which is a Korean-American mm-hmm. or a Korean-Swede or, or Korean-French. So what we heard very consistently was that this was a self-guided process. Mm-hmm. That these people went through it by themselves with very, very little guidance and with very little mentoring. So often they were unable to really come to grips with this until they were in college. And all of a sudden they were in communities that were certainly more multicultural. And they saw how black people were with Mm -hmm. other black people and they saw how Asian people were with other Asian people. And so this began to, to help their sense of racialization. So those are very common stories that we heard about. We, we also talked to a lot of people about their desire to search what that meant in terms of what they wanted out of that process and what they wanted out of any information they could find. We talked to people about their reunion experiences if they were able to find birth family and obviously those were very very complicated stories but i think maybe one of the biggest things uh, points of consistency was the fact that that most people and i i basically when i when i sat people down in the interviews we didn't ask them specific questions we asked them basically to take us through their life from everything they knew about their origin to today and we, we sort of staged that out into Korea adoption, growing up, you know, adulthood. But I didn't ask a bunch of specific questions like they do on 60 Minutes or something mm-hmm. like that. Or like I am doing right now. So, so what I did is I said, just tell us what you want to tell us about and go however long you want to go. I think the shortest interview was 12 minutes. The longest one was an hour and a half. I would say the average was very, very close to an hour. And these are people who just basically talked 
uninterrupted for 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. But at the end, I often asked people a specific question, and that was, how much of this have you told other people? Mm. How much of this have you told your parents, your siblings, your friends, Mm -hmm. your spouse? And the vast majority of the time, the answer was very little. And in fact, I think that that a lot of those families haven't even necessarily had the opportunity to, to see the films that the interview subject is in, mm-hmm. you know, because because they may not want to expose that side of themselves to their families. I don't know. I haven't talked to them all about that, but these are very, very private revelations. Why did they feel compelled to to reveal these things in mm-hmm. front of a camera that would be made absolutely public to everybody. I believe that this information has been terribly pent up. Mm. And the reason it's been pent up is because is because the standard traditional narrative about adoption, public narrative, is one of compassion and rescue and love, right? Mm-hmm. And their parents may even have unaware of the implications of that even supported those narratives to those children growing Mm -hmm. up. And we heard that over and over that people have been told as children that they really, that they're so lucky and that they'd be dead or, you know, facing some horrible fate or, you know, so this was, this is certainly not uncommon. So when, when you've got all this pressure and when people come up, perfect strangers come up to you and say, Oh, you're such a lucky kid. And all of these things, yeah, I think it's only natural that you'd be reluctant to tell people what you've really experienced mm-hmm. and the things you really thought about. And that was absolutely almost universally consistent. What's your advice for adoptive parents today, right now? They have little kids. Well, if we're speaking about intercountry or transracial adoption, my sense is that is you have to start by addressing the thing that we heard almost universally, which was when I was a kid, I was the only one. Mm-hmm. I was the only one, obviously, in the family or, or my, me and my adopted sibling were the only ones in the family or something like that. But I was also the only one at school. I was the only one in the neighborhood. Uh, I was the only one in my group of friends. And I think that that is challenging. That would be challenging for anyone mm-hmm. for any reason if you were the only one of anything, right? So, so I think that it really is helpful to engage with things like heritage camps and culture camps so that, to use a sociological term, you can mirror yourself mm-hmm. with, with other young people, with adults, with the people you're going to grow into, you know, theoretically. So, so I think that that's, that's really helpful to not be the only one. But I also think that parents need to think about their child's, not just the culture of the country they came from, but the culture of the country they are living in as it relates to your child's race. Mm -hmm. So don't just think about what it means to be Korean. Think about what it means to be Korean American Mm -hmm. or Asian American. What do you know about being Asian American? How many books have you read about being Asian American? How many 
popular culture figures do you follow? We're Asian American, and what do they talk about? How do they describe their experience in our country? So I think that being cognizant of those experiences will certainly help you be more comfortable about having those conversations with mm-hmm. your child. I asked you in our pre-interview, are you against adoption? After all of this that you hear and you're just like, it's a lot, do you still agree that children should be adopted? So my answer is kind of layered, okay? I want to believe that family preservation is preferable, okay? And so I believe that governments and societies should do everything they can do to keep families together where the child is not endangered or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's the number one sort of priority. I think that if a child is institutionalized, that is a terrible outcome, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of evidence that shows that institutionalization of kids, whether that's in an orphanage or a foster system, is devastating for a child's well-being. So it is better than to be adopted. And so the question is, can the child be adopted domestically? So particularly if the child's older, there is no transition then, and some of the transitions that, that we've been told about as a six-year-old adoptee or whatever, you know, from Korea to the U.S., that can be pretty traumatic, obviously. So, mm-hmm. so can, the, can the child be adopted domestically? If that's not possible, and for many reasons, maybe it won't be culturally, there isn't a lot of domestic adoption in Korea. My personal belief is that with good process and vetting, that is an acceptable solution. But that's with the caveat that we can't as a society assume that adoptions are going to take care of themselves Mm -hmm. and that adopted kids are going to automatically turn out well because adoption is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. So true. It's so true. It's, It's work. And it's when you say yes to an adoption, it's for life. And it's finding out who this little person is that you brought into your home and what's best for them, what's best for the child. And if you're doing it because you want to fill a need, because I need to be a mom, because I need to be a parent, or because I need to do something good, or because maybe the faith base that you have is pushing you into that so you feel compelled, those are all not good reasons. If you want to change a child's life to know who they are as an individual, where they came from and where they're going, then you're on the right path. And if you're willing to work really hard through the duration of the child's life, that's when adoption, in my opinion, can be the most successful. Thank you for being on. Tell everybody how they can watch this film. I do think that adoptive parents have found this project to be enormously useful. Mm -hmm. These are not the sorts of things that they've heard before because these people haven't told this stuff to anybody, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, I would encourage people to go to sidebysideproject.com where they will find all 100 interviews, seven countries, six languages, 16 cities, 100 people, including 12 people who aged out of the orphanage in Korea, and 88 people who grew up as adoptees around the world. You'll see those interviews virtually uncut in their entirety, and they are incredibly Mm -hmm. revealing of this experience. We also cut a short documentary film uh, about a 40-minute film that uh, has been making its way around film festivals around the U.S. and has done pretty well. And uh, we've gotten some amazing reactions from all kinds of different audiences, from general audiences to adoptive families to 
to Asian American audiences, to adoptees, of course. Mm-hmm. So it's been an amazing six months of, of showing this film around. And over some time in the, in the very, very near future, we're going to start streaming that film online. I would, I would encourage you to check in to SideBySideProject.com or our Facebook page at SideBySideProject to uh, get updates on that. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. I mean, it's really amazing. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. Don't forget to like Adoption Now on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and remember all of our podcasts are available at adoptionnow.com. Thank you for tuning in to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. See you next week.